Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Well, six and a half pages, 917. We're already two minutes late, so let's, let's roll. How's that? Father in heaven, we do appreciate your loving kindness, your mercies that are new. Um, I'm always reminded when, I, when the sunshine comes through this window on a Sunday morning, it's uh, how beautiful your creation is and how blessed we are. It is a gorgeous day in the Lord. It's uh, great to be with God's, with your people. Uh, I pray that this morning we'll have an uh, appreciation for how you created, why you created, uh, and that we can give you the glory Do your name. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay. So... Um, my introduction, I usually do some kind of a little historical uh, theology. Um, so there's, there were two prevailing views among the ancients um, regarding creation. Uh, Greek philosophy maintained a, a dualistic position that both God and matter are eternal. Obviously, they're, they're, um, they believed a lot differently about who God was but they reasoned uh, that a God must exist. And they, as I mentioned last week, uh, Aristotle uh, used reason to determine that matter must, must be eternal. How could it come out of nowhere? Well, obviously the Christian church has an answer for that. They've always maintained uh, the Christian doc, doctrine of ex nihilo. I can't say that word very well. It's Latin, and it means out of nothing. Most people know that the word nil means zero or nothing, right? When you score nil, that's bad, right, in soccer. Um, and so ex means out of in Latin. So it of, means out of nothing. Um, it's easier for me to say out of nothing than to say the Latin phrase. Um, there's... I'm going to, uh, there, I, I maintain there's four fundamental issues of creation. Not, these aren't the four, the four. These are just four that I'm um, concerned about, that I think are, um, merit uh, our discussion. Um, so this is mostly an inter introduction uh, that I'm going to do right now. But my three main points are going to be uh, one, three, and four. Uh, this is uh, still, it's really important. Um, the first one, as I mentioned, the uh, ex nihilo. It's uh, I even pressed a Google thing, you know, I have them say it so I could practice it, but it, I haven't practiced it in a while, so I, I guess I should have done that. Um, but historically, this this aspect has unanimous support, and I think it's a necessary inference from Scripture. Uh, this is going to be my first main point. Among among the early church fathers, um, Augustine dealt with the issue of creation more than the others. Augustine uh, powerfully uh, defended the doctrine, the, the doctrine of creation out of nothing. And I would say that after the apostles, Augustine um, has had greater influence than anyone else in Christendom. Greater than, than Calvin and Luther and anyone you can think of, Augustine has probably had greater theological inf influence than anyone. 
right or wrong, he's not right about everything, nobody is. Luther, I think, was wrong on some things, as was Calvin, etc. I think our pastor will almost like, he'll point out when he disagrees with Calvin, and it's, it's not often that he does, but he'll make a note of it, because it's unusual even. But in particular, Augustine's work on the Trinity and original sin is foundational in Christian thought, not to mention creation, salvation by grace, and even predestination. Apart from the Apostle Paul, Calvin quoted Augustine more than anyone. John Calvin wrote, Augustine is so holy within me that if I wished to write a confession of my faith, I could do so with all fullness and satisfaction to myself out of his writings. Now, Luther didn't trust too many people, and even he had sometimes had reservations about even Augustine. I think he had reservations about everyone, um, seriously. Um, but Luther said, except only for Augustine, there was great blindness among the fathers. When he says that, he's talking about the early church fathers, uh, Justin Martyr, you know, those, those dudes, like second, third century. Luther said, after the Holy Scriptures, Augustine should especially be read, for he had keen judgment. So admittedly, while Luther praised Augustine over all the early church fathers, he was also willing to speak negatively as well. So I could probably find a quote where he said something negative as well. Luther was really big on, we only trust the scriptures, right? I, I, you know, he would put Paul above any other man, right? Or Peter or James or, um, but Augustine's influence is undeniable. Um, the second point um, is that um, this won't be a main point, just but it's very important, is that God freely created the world. He did, this, he did not do this out of compulsion. And we would say this is in distinction from the eternal generation of the Son. And that's a, been a kind of a hot theological topic the last decade. Um, and so the idea is that, well, something related to that actually, but the fact that Jesus exists was necessary. We believe that was, that it, it, to even say that it was part of God's plan is probably incorrect because he, he's eternally generated. That's a whole other topic. Maybe we'll talk about that next year. I don't know if someone, someone makes, since we're going to be dealing next year, we're going to continue truth in life and deal with other, some more theological concepts. I don't know if someone has that, but I know that we're dealing more uh, with some more uh, Christological uh, topics, things that deal with Jesus, right? A theology of Christ and salvation. And so it's possible eternal generation of the Son will be something we talk about. But in distinction from that, which was a necessary act, the creation of the world was a free act of the triune God. Now, that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. If he planned it, it was going to happen, right? But... Um, but Augustine reasoned that since God is wholly omnipotent, he neither creates under constraint or compulsion from any external source. God didn't have to create the world, but, he, but because he saw that it was the right thing to do, then what he does is perfect, and so it exists. Augustine argued that creation was eternally in the will of God. There was no time before creation, and this is where it gets kind of tricky, since the world was brought into being with time rather than in time. And that's what we believe as a church, that the world was brought into being with time 
rather than in time. It wasn't like God said, well, I think I'll create the world now. Uh, he created the world with time. And so very, uh, these are, uh, this is deep stuff. And it's, it's, it's mysterious, right? Because in our, our finite, the way we understand scientific principles, the way we understand time, the way we understand matter, we can't fit what the Bible teaches us about God into those constraints. Right, we can't. It, the, the boundaries, the science has boundaries. God does not. And that's why it's hard to fit that into a biblical view. Um, the, the third uh, point, which will be, this will be the, my second point after this intro, because what I just talked about I'm, gonna, uh, I'm not going to expand on, is that the early church uh, widely believed in a literal six-day creation. Uh, very hot topic, needless to say. Augustine, on the other hand, was the most prominent early father who found it difficult to say what kind of days the days of Genesis were. And I found that remarkable. Because we think of this whole literal six-day thing as, as a modern debate since like the, maybe the Enlightenment or the modern liberal period that I talked about recently around you know when Darwin came along. But this is... Um, for a long time, uh, there have been people that, that have wondered, well, even, it didn't take, it doesn't take a genius to, to think that things look really old out there, right? We're going to talk about that, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to push people off their, you know, wherever they stand here. I'm going to present some information, um, but I will say this, and I think I may have said it last week. It's my position that God tells us what we need to know, not necessarily what we want to know. It's indisputable that the Bible doesn't tell us everything. Whatever your distinct position on creation, the veracity of Scripture cannot be compromised. And I think, I think there's you know, two points you know, are not negotiable. Actually, um, when I said there's fun, these two are not negotiable. God created out of nothing. That's plain in Scripture. And to say that he didn't violates Scripture. And God freely, will create, freely willed to create the world. These things, um, these are not hills to die on. They're important. And I'm going to tell you why I think they're important. And why I think that we should have a position, but um, these are these are non-negotiable. Yes, sir. When you say not hills to die on, you mean we shouldn't try to kick people out of Christianity. Absolutely, that's one of my points. That these should not. If you meet, you know, well, someone says, well, I'm a theist, theistic evolutionist, and I knew someone like that. He was he was a PhD in biology. Hard to knock him off that, yeah. you know that when everyone around him and Steve you in your field when you all the science you took um, I talked to a biology teacher they they just accept evolution as fact right and there are scholars out there and I shared a paper by a Jewish scholar who also believed in it was a theist, theistic evolutionist do I think he's wrong yeah we're not right about it I'm not right about everything but I'm going to passionately defend everything I believe unless you can prove me wrong. 
Right now, because people have complained growing up, you know, you can tell, I like to argue, let's face it, I, I do. I like to play devil's advocate even. I make people mad sometimes. No. You know, no, imagine that. Oh, can you imagine what it was like when I, you know, when I became a Calvinist or even when I became a Christian? You know, I made some people mad. And people will say, Randy, you, you know, you think you're right all the time. Well, if I didn't, like, believe my position, why would I passionately defend it? I passionately defend what I think is right. And then if I'm not, prove me wrong. I'm all ears. I wasn't always a Calvinist. It was a, it was a long road. And it was finally Romans 9, and we were like, like, I couldn't get past Romans 9. That's why there was a young man that came to the, the, the men's dinner the other night. He, he apparently has a podcast I'm not aware of, uh, and he, he had a shirt that said, Wine em, Dine em, Romans 9 em. And, and I, you know, that resonated with me. I talked to him. We had a lot, I sat with him. We talked, talked quite a bit. We have a lot in common. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm getting off track here. So I'm gonna, I have three main points uh, other than application. Uh, the first one is um, uh, creation out of nothing. And, and so the natural question is, what did God make the world out of? And that's a leading question because you're supposed to say nothing, right? right? He didn't make the world out of anything. And, and so, of course, it's, it's difficult to define. What is nothing after all? Any definition or conceptualization of nothing will kind of make it into something. This is really difficult. And to add that to the complexity of this idea, we must recognize that to make something requires space to put it in, right? Imagine making a stone, but you have nothing to make it out of and you don't have a place to put it. Um, so even the use of a preposition of out of or in or of, even prepositions are problematic, right? To say something is out of implies an origin from something. To say God spoke creation into existence, into nothing, is also awkward, right? Um, so we would say creation is neither out of pre-existing material nor into a pre-existing place. Plato and Aristotle understood to some extent the problems accounting for, for the world by pre-existing realities. You know, they didn't understand or, or, or know about the biblical God. But we, so, so Plato decided, thought, well, there must be an eternal receptacle. And we, we categorically deny that. We don't believe it. We don't believe it. And we oppose, likewise, Aristotle's notion that, that um, matter existed eternally. We say no. We oppose that. So we oppose the philosophers. I mean, they, they used reason to, to get to at least God, but then it falls apart, right? They don't have the revelation that we have. So how should um, this be defined, right? Oh, I guess I'm, I'm one behind on my slides here. How should out of nothing or ex nihil be defined? To say that God created the world out of nothing is to say that God created the world with, without any pre-existing material or medium. To say that requires no definition of nothing. 
And, and so in geometry, we have something called undefined terms. It seems like an oxymoron, right? Because a term, when you learn a term in school, right, it's usually a, a something that means something, that has a definition. We're going to learn these terms today. And if I tell you in geometry that we have an undefined term, it's like, what? What does that mean? And I try to explain how it, it's very abstract. So a point, a line, a plane are undefined terms in geometry. A point doesn't exist, but it does, right? A point doesn't have size. There's no such thing as a big point or a little point. A point is an exact location. But if I put a pin on that point and say, there it is, no, it's inside that pin, it's inside that pin, it's inside, right? It's just an exact location. It's not tangible in any way. And so there's certain things that we just accept as, 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 as existing, but we can't define it. And so in that case, I would say nothing with respect to creation is an undefined term. Um, it simply denies the view that God made the world out of pre-existing stuff. He merely spoke and things appeared, along with space and time for them to occupy. And there's plenty of scriptural support for the doctrine, and this is where, as Christians, I admit, you know, as if you're reasoning with academics, you have to say, right, this is where we say we have revelation. You don't. We believe it. You don't. We have cause to believe it. And this is what we believe. And we think that the, the account of Genesis 1 is consistent with, you know, what we see in Scripture, throughout Scripture. Uh, David in the Psalms, he says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. It wasn't just something that happened in Genesis 1. The church has always believed this. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. That's Psalm 33. Creation was by the word of the Lord, not by or through existing matter. This is consistent with teaching in the New Testament. Um, let's see, I think I must have missed some slides. Here we go. So, uh, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. That's clearly, that's right, that's this verse in Hebrews. He didn't make it out of pre-existing stuff. The world was spoken into, into existence by God. This language is certainly consistent with the idea of creation ex nihil and even suggested, but it leaves, you know, someone said, well, what, did he create something out of what was invisible? I don't know, you know. I don't know, um, but there wasn't pre-existing stuff. The clearest language may be in Romans where Paul describes God as he, he calls into being that which does not exist, if it's hard for you to read all this. Even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. There's clear scriptural support for this doctrine. We affirm that creation out of nothing as a good and necessary inference from the biblical doctrine of creation. Well, certainly the world had a beginning, right? That's clear in Scripture. So there wasn't, it, it didn't pre-exist. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, let's see. Here we go. Um, before that beginning, there was no world, only God. So then there was no material out of which the world could be made. And again, I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir here. This isn't real controversial yet. We'll get there. Um, creation is universal. Everything in heaven and earth and sea is God's creation. 
All things came into being, uh, if we read John 1.3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing was made that came into being. How much clearer do you need it to be? At least, at least our position, this is what we believe. This is not my opinion. This is not Christ the Word's opinion. This is uh, very clear in Scripture. Thus, God created all material that can be used to make other things. Since none of it existed before creation, God did not make the world out of pre-existing stuff. God created as Lord. He brings the world forth by his power and command. Um, probably my, one of my favorite verses, and I, and I really think Colossians 1 is just so rich. You know, when you're, if you want to talk about the deity of Christ, the, the supremacy of Christ, um, this is, you know, all things hold together by him, according to Christ. He keeps everything together. It's, it's uh, Colossians 1, uh, great devotional material. Scripture identifies a clear distinction between creator and creature. The creation is a servant, the world is... And by the way, the world is not the lower end of a continuum with God at the top. I, I may have mentioned that before, but there's not a... See, w people like to think of, okay, like even the Greeks might say, well, there's God and then there's this continuum. There's not a continuum. There's God and everything else. And there's a chasm. There's not even, there's no, there's, there's no continuum here. And I think that's important. It's not just about creation. It's about how we view God, even how we view our salvation. I'm going to talk about that next week. And the reality is it, it, there's, there's that chasm. You know, even the, the, the story that Jesus tells about Lazarus, not the guy who rose from the dead, the other Lazarus, the poor guy, who be, the beggar, right? And Jesus says there's a big chasm between, and it's the same way. It's with, between God and man. There's just a huge chasm. That's why we need Christ. Um, so the next point, and this is a little more, oh, I don't know what just happened. Uh, the next part is the six days. Genesis 1 and 2 teach that God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. The length and sequence of the six days of creation has been the subject of much controversy in the church, especially in the last century. Now, while each of the three major views being discussed today may have some merit, our, greater, our greatest concern, listen to me, our greatest concern should be what God wants us to know about him as creator. That's the most important thing. And I, I would appeal to Paul here, uh, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have clearly been, been seen, have been clearly seen. This is what is really important to know about God. Not the finer points, not that they say that they're not important, but what when we see creation? I mean, Paul's saying that all men are, not, are without excuse. They should be able to see that this isn't an accident, that, that a God must exist. Even the Greeks understood that. Even though they were wrong about their view of gods, they understood that a higher power or a prime mover, as Aristotle said, that there must be a prime mover. Um, when I wrote the small group study guide for Genesis, I purposely um, tried to avoid creation controversies. I imagine some groups may have had some spirited discussions, 
but I did not want us to lose our sight of our goal to properly know and honor the Creator God. I have three goals for this section. I'm going to present the three major views being discussed today, very briefly, consider how Scripture should interact with science, and then three, convince you that, and this is what relates to what I said uh, before, that a particular, a particular interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 should not be a test of Christian orthodoxy. It shouldn't be a test of orthodoxy. It does not to say that it's not important. And I do think that I was talking about it with the Greg, the podcast guy, on Friday. While it's easy to not take a stand, um, taking a stand still is important. Know what you believe, and if someone can convince you otherwise, fine. But make sure that they're using scripture to do so. Um, so there's three, three major views of, come on, work. Okay, not working, space bar, work. Okay, yay. Am I frozen? Let's see. Usually a space bar will do it. Um, let's try it. There we go. I guess we can do the manual way. Let's see if this works now. Oh, it does. Okay, great. So, um, three major views of creation in Genesis 1, 2. So, the first one here, the normal day view, is a day that the days are around 24 hours each, uh, succeeding one another. The, the strength of this view, and it's what I told Greg, I said, you know what? That the reason I, if I got to choose, I'm going to choose this one, is because it's a natural reading of Scripture. I mean, the phrasing of 1-5 is repeated for the other five days. It says, and there was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. I mean, it's almost as if the writer of Scripture was trying to make it really plain. <laughs> right? So, if it's going to be a hill I die on, it's going to be this one. But, unlike some people in our church, I am not like... 100% firm. I'm like Augustine. I look at the world and I say, the world seems pretty old. So I've got to reconcile that, right? And I think we can, but it doesn't mean like I'm, I'm still like Augustine and that I'm still going to say, you know what? I, God created out of nothing. I, um, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Those are hills I'm going to die on, right? The authority of Scripture, I'm, I'm, but push comes to shove. This is the view that's most, that has the most consistent support through the ages. Um, while the, the prevailing scientific view that the earth is very, very old confronts this position, God is capable of creating with age. Certainly, he created Adam with age. There's no, there's no, we don't get the idea that he was created as an infant and then just left to, to raise himself, right? So God is capable of creating with age. He can do whatever he wants. He has that power. If he's truly omnipotent, he can do it. And that's why I, I'm, I'm okay with this view. He can do it. But it does, it is a head scratcher, I'm going to admit. So, and I, I want to be intellectually honest with you. I, I want to, I don't want to, to seem like my head is in the sand. And, you know, it's, it's like that quote I read, had you read uh, last week. We don't want people to laugh at us and think that we're, you know, that we're totally ignoring science. We still, we still trust science. When we, 
we trust science, we trust engineering, right? We, we build bridges and we, you know, doctors fix people and, you know, we, we love chemistry and biology and all that stuff, right? Right? So it's not like we, our heads are in the sand, but, but science doesn't tell us what we need to know about God. It just doesn't. It doesn't. And we're blessed with the revelation that we have in Scripture. Um, the second one is the day-age view. And this, uh, you know, I have a friend who was a philosopher and a Christian, and this was his position. He, he saw Genesis as, uh, uh, this part of Genesis as poetic. And so he thought it as being more uh, symbolic, right, or metaphorical. And the day-age view holds that the narrative gives a chronological history of God's creative acts, but that the days are, are of indefinite duration, most likely periods of many years. In an attempt to reconcile the scientific uh, evidence with God's word, this theory is one of the most popular today. For instance, they'll, they'll cite Genesis 2.4, where it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. I have it up here, but it's small, I see. Um, in the day that the Lord made the heaven and earth. So here, day is being used in a different way, right? As a general, like in the age or in the, the period or the epoch, whichever word you like. And so uh, that's, that's something that they like to hang their hat on. And again, even Augustine, we're not sure how long these days were. You know, we think, this is what scripture says. And so, um, uh, of course, opponents insisted this position is at odds with the grammatical historical understanding of scripture. The other days are assigned numbers, which suggest 24-hour days. And in the Sabbath commandment, we are told to work six days and rest one. We have that pattern in creation, right? And so it, this is not an, it's, it's easy to, to say, look, I think the earth is old and maybe this makes sense, but it's not necessarily easy to defend with scripture. We can't just automatically accept it. It has, it has some holes as well. The third one is the framework view. And this is uh, reasons that Genesis 1-2, this says, sees it even more symbolically. It s describes God's creative acts topically and that the succession of days is a literary device for presenting these topical categories, not asserting a chronological sequence. And one premise is the literary form of the book's first few chapters differ from that of the later chapters, poetry versus historical narrative. This you see six days of creation arranged into a framework of two triads, and this is where I think it comes off the rails. Um, but there is nothing absurd in the idea that God created the world in a sequence of events in which he made the first realms. That makes sense. Um, I mentioned this when David, Pastor David was in my class, and I I mentioned this modern position. He, he said that you know one of the teachers at his school is one of the major proponents. And he said he was a kook. Um, but, um, but I would say that even, you know, those who would suggest that, that Genesis 1 and 2 are, are poetic, um, the reality is the Hebrew is metered and, and not rhythmic as, as Hebrew poetry normally is. So this theory has some holes too, um, but again, uh, I'm just, just so you're not ignorant, you know, just to have you be informed. These are the three major views that are out there. I'd say most people in this church are going to go with uh, number one, door number one, and for good reason. 
But I would say this is, again, um, one of the, and I say it's not a hill I want to die on, I should probably clarify that. The reason that I, that I'm, I, I like this view best is because I think scripture is without error. And if I, I'm afraid if I give ground on this, then I might be giving ground on the veracity and truthfulness and the integrity of scripture, and I just don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Now, I don't want to be stubborn, so that's why I'm, 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 I want to be a good listener. I want to be thoughtful. I, I want to know what I believe and, and defend it properly. But I want to do it with care and without arrogance. Like scripture says, come let us reason together. My next uh, topic is um, called scripture and science. So certainly modern science has influences the, the debate. And by the way, I showed a slide last week, and I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. Uh, Mark? Mark was saying, I had a picture of some famous scientists from 100 years ago, people who had made really important developments. And Mark was reminding me that Louis Pasteur actually was uh, trying to offer scientific evidence to, that opposed evolution, and that he was actually uh, probably um, like disrespected, right, uh, because of his views, but that he campaigned uh, vigorously to defend the, the biblical uh, view of creation. So I thought that was interesting, and I didn't, uh, I would have liked to have mentioned that last week. Um, so, so certainly modern science has influenced the debate, claims that the universe has existed for billions and billions of years, and that's a little uh, joke there. Um, have undoubtedly motivated theologians to see whether these claims are consistent with scripture. And so this is re meant kind of rethinking traditional positions. And it's okay to rethink traditional positions. Tradition isn't always right. Okay, it's okay to rethink. It's okay to analyze, to investigate. Again, I don't want us to have our heads in the sand. We should not presume at the outset that modern scientists are wrong. Don't just say, oh, you're wrong. I don't think that's smart. It could be that our interpretation of Scripture is, is wrong. However, where we will not give ground, it's not possible for Scripture itself to be wrong. Understand? We may, we may be wrongly in, interpret Scripture, um, but I think we must be humble enough to re-examine these questions, even if, even if we initially doubt the reliability of certain scientific claims. But there is also there are wrong ways of being influenced by science. In re-examining traditional views, we should not be governed by any principles or of reasoning inconsistent with scripture. We should not, for example, this is important, assume the absolute uniformity of natural laws. Once we do that, then we, we, we're, we, we remove liberty from God, right? God isn't God once we do that. So we, we, can't, we, we can't assume the, the uniformity of natural laws, the impossibility of miraculous events, or the absolute validity of currently accepted procedures for determining dates in antiquity. Scientists aren't always right either. They make claims, they make assumptions, 
Remember, evolution is still a theory. No one has ever proven it. We'll talk about that shortly. Um, taking a position. While the literal six-day view is the most natural interpretation, this should not be a test of orthodoxy. There have long been differences among Christians, devout Christians, smart Christians on this matter. As I mentioned, Augustine was uncertain, but there's others. Charles Hodge, Benjamin Warfield, Machen, Carl Henry, Gleason Archer, all questioned the length of the day. They questioned it. They didn't say, they didn't necessarily say it wasn't a literal sixth day, they just questioned it. Understand? There's a difference. It's okay to question it. It does not appear that any other doc doctrines rest logically on our literal six-day view of creation in Genesis. I mean, our justification by faith, for example, does not lean on that doctrine. Now, I'm not here to put questions in your mind. That's not my point. But my point is for us to be sensible because we're trying to win people to Christ. We need to, we need to, to some extent, meet them where they're at. If, if they want to reason with us, they need to know that you're a good listener too. But you don't have to give ground on, on, on stuff just because you're trying to win them to Christ. You don't, give, you don't give ground about who Jesus is or who God is. You just don't. You don't have to, and you shouldn't. We should remind ourselves, uh, where's my thing here? We should remind ourselves, hopefully I'm on the right place, um, to, that speaking through Moses, that God speaking through Moses in Genesis 1 and 2, presuming that Moses wrote Genesis, that he has a purpose. What, what exactly, if you were to think about it, do you think when, when you read Genesis 1, do you think the purpose was to present a scientific view of creation? Is that the feel you get, that it's a science chapter? No, of course not, right? The purpose is to display God's glory in his creative work. And then, and then what, what is really important, what's going on here? It presents a background for the narrative of the fall and the need for a redeemer. That's why I, I, when I named the, the, the Genesis study a promised seed, I wanted everyone to know that was the theme throughout the, the Genesis. Right from the, right from the temptation in the garden to, to when the angel told Abraham that God will provide the lamb. He's talking about Jesus, right? It's all throughout scripture. And, and that's what our, when we get bogged down by creation debates, we're, we're missing the point. Missing the point. It's, it's still important, don't get me wrong. It's still important. Um, oh my word, look at the time. So it's not the primary purpose, I'm gonna roll now. Um, it's not the primary purpose of, of the narrative to tell us precisely how God made, made the world, when he did it, how long it took, how this relates to modern science. We should not demand that God give us more than what he has given us. He's given us enough. So the last one was the age of the earth and evolution. Um, science certainly offers a formidable challenge. The young earth view is a prevalent view of the church and implies that God created the, church, the earth with age. And I'm, and I'm cool with that, right? And, and I kind of mentioned that. And so the notion of the idea that the earth is about 6,000 years old is probably makes science probably thinks, you know, we're kooks, right? Right? 
But, you know, we, we trust the Word of God. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm fine with it. And I, I look at things, you know, pretty carefully. I'm okay with it. Uh, the other thing, evolution. Uh, while the science community at large accepts evolutionary theory as fact, I must object. God did not take an already existing living creature and make him specifically human. So I, I reject theistic evolution. The frequent repetition of according to their kinds and according to its kind in Genesis indicates there are divinely imposed limitations on what can result from reproduction. Of course there's evidence of microevolution. That's evolution within a species. That does happen, how we kind of make changes to adapt to our environment. That makes sense. But it's not, it's not the same thing as a fish becoming a man. That's different. That's different. Fish do evolve within their species. They may develop different kinds of fins over time. They may get smaller or larger. We get that. Same thing happens with humans, right? I mean, look at the, how, how the color of our skin has evolved depending on where we live. It does happen, right? And so, um, I know, but macroevolution, no. There, and, and, and don't let scientists get away with it. There's gaps, right? I mean, they, and, and no one's been able to reproduce it in the laboratory. They try, people want to do it, and they've invested lifetimes trying to do it. They can't, it just doesn't happen. Um, this is really a great quote, um, really, I think, solid. And he says that the, this Darwinian revolution was philosophical rather than scientific, and I agree with him. This was the science the, the, at the turn of the previous century. That's what was going on. People just didn't want to believe the Bible. They were questioning its authenticity. They were questioning, did miracles really happen? And if you start questioning miracles, then you have to throw the virgin birth out the window. And so it was, it was, it was more of a philosophical thing. And people were appealing to science so they could be in control. So they could say, this is how it should be. They didn't want to subject to an to a omnipotent, sovereign God. Who does? It's not a natural thing. Our, our, the natural man runs away from God, which I'll talk about next week. So, but despite 50, 150 years of research, no one can prove it. They can't. It's still a theory. So uh, our application here with only two minutes left is, I would say, is know your Bible. You need to know what you believe. And you can only do that by reading the Bible. And you should take Paul's advice, because when he's talking about professing, he's talking about the people that, that couldn't look at creation. Okay, this is the context here, right? Because I quoted a couple of verses earlier, earlier in the, in the morning here. And he's saying these people that couldn't, acknowledge God that couldn't honor him and give thanks, right? He's saying they became fools, and so they had to come up with their own plan. You need to know your Bible. That's, that's the thing here. Know your Bible. Don't be surprised about the foolishness of man. Be ready to give it a defense. That's what Peter says. See, and this is why I, I defend the literal six-day view, because an attack on the biblical view of creation is ultimately an attack on the Bible. 
Know why you trust the Bible. The Bible is a reliable manuscript. I was talking about this with Greg too. There's nothing in antiquity has, has contradicted what's in the Bible. People will, I've had people say, well, the Bible has all kinds of mistakes. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Don't let them get away with that. It doesn't have mistakes. It's more accurate than Shakespeare. I'm, seriously, if you were to go find an old, if you could find an original document from Shakespeare and compare it to one today, you would see that they, were, they wouldn't be the same. There's changes. It happens. The Bible is, re, is the most, is most um, reliable, textual, ancient document in the world, bar none. There's nothing like it. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey is the, the best one to compare, and it, it's not even close. Not even close. We have so many, so many manuscripts to compare, and the Dead Sea Scrolls was an amazing discovery. So the, the thing is, you need to read your Bible, and you have to have a plan. And if, if you don't read your Bible regularly, it's because you don't have a plan. You have to be committed to a plan. And I'm not saying this to sound legalistic, because I used to like actually think that, oh, well, if I, I, I felt I didn't want people to make me feel guilty if I didn't have like my morning quiet time. You know, and so I used that as an excuse to not have a morning quiet time. Because I don't want those people being legalistic, right? I don't want me to think I'm, and so I used it as an excuse. Imagine that. So I would say, I'll have my quiet time when I feel like it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right? And then we use it as an excuse to say, well, I'm too busy. What? And Luther would say, you know, I said, man, I got so much to do, I'm going to have to pray for two hours today. That's the kind of attitude we have. We're, if we're so busy, then we need to pray more because we got stuff to do, right? And who's going to help us get that stuff done? I'm getting off topic here. Have a plan. Don't just read scripture, meditate on its meaning. I, I implore you, read less, think more than reading more and thinking less. Does that make sense? Even if it's just like, I'm right now, I'm just reading a psalm a day. And you might think, well, that's not much Bible reading. But I read my one psalm, and then I meditate on it. And I write, it, I write down. I'm writing. And I'm forcing myself to think about how it applies to me. I'm personally trying to improve my worship. My personal worship isn't very good. When I pray, I thank God, which is partly worship. I thank God, and I ask for stuff. And occasionally, I confess. I need to improve my prayer life, and to do that, I think I need to improve my worship. And so now I finished Romans 6, 7, and 8, and now I'm, in, I'm meditating on Psalms. You should have a plan. Come up with your own plan. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be, you say, well, Randy, you're, you're a smart guy. You know, I can't do it. You, yes, you can. You do it at your level. Meditate. Choose. You don't have to read a lot. Just think about it. But what you, when you do read, think about what you read. I was going to close with, with Augustine. And I'm just going to kind of, um, we go to God in prayer and we, we should read his word and then pray, right? Read word, then pray. And um, his confession, he's famous for his confession. And, and so he, um, this is how he closes. And I thought it was pertinent. I like coming back to my introduction. You know, I talked about Augustine in the beginning. And we go to God, we go to his word, and we pray. And he will, he will reveal himself to us. It's how he does it. 
we're so blessed to be able to read and have the Bible at our disposal. Let's not, let's not, you know, what's the right word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, thank you. Let's not neglect that privilege. Please, 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 let's pray. Father in heaven, we, I, I, I pray that right now our hearts are prepared to worship you to, because you are an amazing, loving, creator, righteous, holy God. And we, there's so many attributes, so many that we, we could, if we were careful, we could probably think of tens and even hundreds of attributes that de define you. I praise my wife so effortlessly. Why don't I praise you effortlessly? Lord, give us hearts and minds that effortlessly praise you because of what we know about you, because we're committed to reading your word, just hearing what you have to tell us. Help us to be regular in our reading so we can be strengthened, to be spiritually minded. We love you, God, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.